Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. Wherever you are at, however you are with us, we want to say welcome. Whether you are listening to the audio only version on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whether you're watching this on video through our website or through our Facebook page, we are glad that you are here. If you are on our website or on our Facebook page, please say hello in the chat. We'd love to know that you're here and we'd love to say hello to you. If you're on our Facebook page, feel free to share the video and spread uh, the teaching of the Word of God. Uh, if you are visiting with us, we want to say hello and welcome. Uh, if you have not connected with us as part of our church family. We'd love to know who you are. We know there's people who've been watching but haven't really connected. And you can send an email. Adam at faithonhill.com is my email. And we'd love to know uh, who you are. You can send us a Facebook message uh, as well. Uh, if you're on vacation, we hope that you're having a fantastic time. And if you're home because you're just not able to come in person or you're not feeling well, we want you to know that we're with you. We're praying for you. We remember you. Things going on around the church. All summer we are meeting in person on Sunday mornings in our field. Uh, we've got the pop-up tents for shade. We have uh, people bringing beach blankets and lawn chairs, and we're having a good time enjoying the summer weather. We'll be back in our building in the fall. Also, small groups will restart in the fall as well. If you uh, have the ability, we are still taking food donations for Wichita Family Center. And if you aren't coming in person, but you'd love to you're really able to drop it off. You can message me and we can arrange a time for you to drop off food donations. If you have a Bible, we are back in the letter of 1 John, studying uh, how to live as Christians. And afterwards, stick around for a time of response to what God speaks to us as we worship Jesus through prayer. If you have a Bible, then open to 1 John chapter 4. Hey, well, we are back in our study of 1 John, and if you have a Bible, open it to the book of 1 John chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7. The, the big theme of the book could be summed up in this phrase, love one another because love is from God. But what is love? One person might say, this is the most loving thing you could do. And another person would say, no, that's terrible. That's actually harmful. This thing over here is the most loving thing you could do. Well, this morning, the Apostle John is going to give us a definition of what love is and what love does. Chapter 4, verse 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God shows his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and testified that the father sent his son to be the savior 
of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. And this is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he loved us first. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is God's word. Now, you might say, Adam, didn't we study this passage before? Yeah, a couple weeks ago. And I know we've had like a few weeks of pause in our study of 1 John. And you might say, hey, Adam, why are we studying this again? Well, I'll tell you the truth. Whenever you're teaching part of the Bible, you can talk about likely 20 different things. And, you know, you just kind of try to hear from the Lord. Uh, what, are the, what are the things that God wants to speak to his church this week? And so when it came to this particular set of verses, I could have preached several different sermons. And so what I decided to do was do one sermon a few weeks ago and do another sermon this week. When we talked about it a few weeks ago, we talked about how the biggest threat to our faith wasn't the outside, it was apathy on the inside. But this week, let's assume that we are not living in apathy, that we're wanting to live in love Let's talk about what that looks like. What is real love and what does it do? First of all, real love is defined by God. What is love? So if we say that God is love, we're not saying that the substance of God is love. Rather, we are saying that God defines what love is. Jesus defined love by his life, his words, his actions towards the Father and towards the people around him, towards the entire world. Somebody might come and say, I want to be loving towards somebody in this situation. And therefore, I'm going to do exactly the opposite of what God has taught us to do. Well, then that's not being loving to them. It might be that the loving thing to do is the exact opposite of what a religious culture has taught us to do. That's totally fair. But that's not the same thing as what God has actually said to do. I was recording uh, some of our 20-minute Bible study podcasts this week, and I came to a part in the book of Exodus that struck me as, wait a minute, God told them to do this thing, and isn't there a prohibition in Jewish culture and custom against doing the very thing that God told them to do. So I did some research. I looked it up. And it turns out that the prohibition is not biblical. It's merely traditional and cultural. And even some honest rabbis, some reading some scholarly work on it from these rabbis, they're like, yeah, there's, there's a prohibition against it, and here's why. But it's not a biblical prohibition. It's a traditional or rabbinical prohibition. And that's true of a lot of things. 
where people say, well, I think the most loving thing to do is actually the opposite of what God says. Well, no, it's actually the opposite of what a religious tradition says. Let me give you an example here. One of my favorite stories in the whole Bible is the woman caught in adultery. And if you don't know the story, it's in the Gospels where Jesus was in a town and the leaders, the religious leaders, brought before him a woman who they said was caught in the very act of adultery and they wanted him to pass judgment on her because they wanted to trap him. Because they knew that Jesus was loving, he was forgiving, he ate with the sinners and the tax collectors, so they said, oh, we'll, we'll trip him up because he will have to pass judgment on her or else he will be guilty of violating the law. But if he does pass judgment on there, on her, then he will lose his popular support among these sinners that love him so much. So what did Jesus do? He said, okay, what does the law say to do? And the law says to stone such a person. And he said, okay, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. And of course, nobody could say that, so they left. And then Jesus, who was without sin, came up to her. Now, the religious system condemned this woman. Do you notice that it says she was caught in the very act of adultery, and yet the man who would have been there with her was not brought before him? Why? Because they were following a religious system that protected the, the men and penalized the women. Somebody might say that sounds familiar. Jesus said, I'm not going to follow your religious traditions, your cultural precedents that you have somehow elevated or made equal or said, this is what God has said. Rather, I'm going to follow God and I'm going to bring repentance. What was it that the Old Testament prophet said? God desires repentance over sacrifice. The sacrifice of the religious system. He said, I'd rather you just repent and not sin anymore. So what did Jesus do? He said to the woman, where are your accusers? And she said, they've all left. And he said, well, I don't accuse you. But then he says, go and sin no more. So if we say, what is the most loving thing we could do? The most loving thing we could do is to not bring judgment on another person, is to not bring condemnation on another person. And yet, it would also be to not, it would be unloving to not call them to repentance. You, me, the person sitting next to you, the person that lives across the street from you, the person you see at the grocery store. We, as bringers of the gospel, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we call all people, women, men, young and old, everyone, we call them to repentance. God is love. And if God is calling people to repent, if God is telling people go and sin no more, then the most loving thing that we can do is say the same thing. We're not standing here in accusing. We're not standing here with rocks in our hands ready to throw. We don't bring the accusation. We bring the hope of forgiveness and grace. Now, this might ask another question. The first question is, what is love? And we would say Jesus defines what love is through his life and his words and his actions. 
Another question some might ask is, well, if Christians are to love one another, and if the God that you claim to serve is the definition of love, then why are some non-Christians that I know more virtuous, more moral, more kind than some Christians that I know? Why is it that, that there are people who are doing great deeds and great works who do not believe in Jesus, and then there are people who do claim to believe in Jesus, and they're some of the most selfish people I've ever met? Here's my response to that. First is this. Virtue and morality is not the Christian goal. It might be, and hopefully is, a byproduct of the work that God is doing in my life. That I would be a more upright person, that I would be a person of integrity, that I would be a person of virtue or morality. But it's not the inherent goal. Remember what it, what does it says? It says that God defined what love is, not that we loved God, not that we did moral things, not that we have shown virtue. Oh, look, God, how much I love you by all these things that I've done. John says that love is shown and defined not by what we do, but by the fact that God loved us. In fact, I would argue this. Jesus reveals the weakness of human virtue. Jesus reveals the weakness of human virtue. There, there are people who do all kinds of work, all kinds of philanthropic things, all kinds of charitable organizations, and then you find out, well, they're just doing it for a tax break. They set up a charity because it makes them look good. It helps their standing in the community. They, they, they're doing these works and they're organizing these things because it's how they find fulfillment. Everybody says, good job. And that's how they find fulfillment. It's not for good reasons. It's for selfish reasons. Now, am I happy if a kid has an after-school tutoring program, even if the person putting it together for selfish reasons? Am I happy if somebody who was hungry gets fed, even if somebody was just doing it for a tax break? Yes, absolutely. But let's not pretend that somebody is more virtuous or moral. And I'm not trying to call anyone out. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. But we've seen time and time again where this person that we proclaim to be upright or virtuous is not. And Jesus reveals the weakness of our virtue because even the most upright, the most high standing, the most moral, when they come before God, their sins are laid bare. And all, all people the Bible says, have sinned and fallen far short of the glory of God. There is no person who could stand before God on their own merits, on their own works. Only Jesus could do that. So when we say, what is real love? What is real virtue? What is real goodness? It's not going to be defined by you or me. It's only defined by by who God is and what God has done. And he has expressed that as he revealed himself through the person of Jesus Christ. So what does real love do? As Jesus is working in my life and real love is being expressed among his followers, what does real love do? What does it look like? I think it's very interesting where, where it says about fear. About fear. It says in verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear 
because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Let's be honest about this. There have been churches and people who have used fear to control people. They take the framework, the trappings of the Christian faith, and then they use fear to control people. If you don't do this, then God will be against you. If you don't do this, then you won't receive a blessing. If you don't do this, then you will be in sin. And then they use a religious cultural system as a means of control. Let's acknowledge that. That has happened in the past. Tragically, I'm sure it will happen in the future until Jesus comes back and makes things right. Let's also be honest and say that there are Christians who have passed on fear to other people instead of love because it's what they have been taught themselves. Maybe you might meet somebody and you say, they're a very fear-based person. Everything in their life is about fear and shame instead of love and freedom. But then you find out it's how they were raised. They were raised in a church background that was based on fear and shame. Or they came not from a church background, but they came to faith, but they brought all this baggage with them. There are, there are Christians that I know who hear things like love others, serve others, lay down your life, give up your rights. These are all Christian teachings. But they don't know how to do that stuff outside of the dysfunctional baggage that they brought with them. And so then they hear serve others and they only know how to do that by being sort of a doormat for other people. They hear give up your rights and they don't know how to do that without getting into some kind of like abusive, codependent, uh, dysfunctional relationship with other people. So there are churches and Christians who have used fear to control people. There are churches and Christians who have passed on fear because it's the baggage that they brought with them. Jesus is calling people to repentance from our sins. Jesus is calling people to live holy lives, lives of righteousness. But not through fear, not through threat. If, if the reason we do something is out of fear, out of shame, then I think that should be filtered and, and brought to Jesus and said, Jesus, this is what I was taught. This is what I was told was the thing to do. But I feel like I'm doing it out of, out of compulsion, out of guilt, out of shame, out of fear, out of threat. Can you show me what is right? I believe he will. This is what I've been told I should do. But the reason I'm doing it is because I, I feel like if I don't, there'll be a consequence, not from God, but from people. I, I, I believe this. I believe that there are people who are actually living the way that they should, but they're doing so out of fear. And, and the love of God is not being made perfect in them. And they're suffering because of it. I've said this before, I'll say it again. I believe there are people who try to live as Christians, but they're doing so in their own strength, out of fear, out of shame, trying to make things right in their own works, and they're suffering and they're hating their life and they don't like being a Christian. And it's not surprising because it's not based on the love of God, it's based off of the fear of people. Somebody tries to live as a Christian apart from the love of God, based on the fear of people. No wonder they're miserable. 
we have an opportunity as individual Christians, collectively as a church family, we have an opportunity to cast out fear. We have an opportunity to cast out fear. Do we call people to repentance from their sins? Absolutely. Do we call and encourage people to live holy lives before God? 100% because we believe that is for your blessing and your good. But if we bring shame to other people, if we cast fear on ourselves, then we aren't helping, we're hurting. And so we have an opportunity as people come. And there are people who grew up in churches who only got fear, who only got shame. And we have an opportunity to cast out that fear, to help be part of the process to bring hope and love and peace into their lives. There are people whose the only experience with Christianity has been with people who came with anger and venom, who, who came with condemnation and hypocrisy. And we have an opportunity to bring hope and peace, to show the true love of God, to come to somebody who is caught and lost in their sins and they'll look and say, are you here to throw a stone at me? We say, no. No, we're here to love you. Go and sin no more. Because real love is lived out. Verse 19 says, We love because he loved us first. Meaning that the more that I am aware of the love of God for me, and the more that I am aware of the love that God has for others, then because of that, in response to that, we're going to live love out. And then verse 12 says that no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Meaning you cannot physically see Jesus right now. And no one has ever seen God the Father because he dwells in unapproachable glory. But as God's love is made perfect in us and in our church family, we can be the expression of God to our community. Now, I am aware that live out love is like this very trendy thing. And here's what churches do. And I'm not thinking of any church in particular, so I'm not trying to call anyone out. But what they'll do is they'll say, hey, we should have like, we'll get these, these t-shirts, you know, live out love or, uh, you know, uh, the love of God or something. And we'll, we'll go and we'll do this thing and that'll show them. We'll show them how much we love people. And it's just a marketing campaign. And it's just something we can do so that we feel good about ourselves. I don't think it's as simple as that. I think it literally starts with us choosing to love one another. That's what I think verse 19 is talking about. That's what I think verse 12, if we love one another, it's not about when we say live out the love of God, it's not about like we'll put on these t-shirts, live out love, and then we'll go and we'll like clean an abandoned lot and we'll pick up all the trash along a street. John's saying love one another. I believe that for those of us who are in Christ and part of our church family, the, the, the challenge is to be part of that church family. And that's not easy. I've spoken about this before, but there are all kinds of things that want to divide people. All kinds of things that want us to see someone different as the enemy. Old and young. You know, uh, people that have a certain amount of money, people that don't have a certain amount of money, people from a, a certain political point of view against a people from a different political point of view, people from a certain cultural or ethnic background versus people of a different cultural or ethnic experience. 
And we're a multi-generational church. And, and we have people of different backgrounds and different experiences. And it can be challenging to live out love. But if we choose to say, you know what? It's more important to me that someone loves Jesus because that makes them my brother or my sister than it is whether they have the same opinion that I do about tax policy or healthcare or whatever. It's more important to me that I recognize somebody as in Christ and with me, even if we come from different experiences and you know one generation's experience is different than another's, but we choose to be together. You want to want to be different than the world? Choose to be part of something that's multi-generational. Choose to be something that sees politics as secondary. Choose to be part of something that sees Jesus as king. Real love is defined by God. Real love will cast out fear. So we are going to be opposed to fear-based religion. We are going to be opposed to shame-based Christian culture. But real love is lived out. So we are going to call people to go and sin no more. And we are going to say, hey, I'm going to choose to see you as my family. And I'm not giving up on you. Even though sometimes you say something that just makes me go, what? And I say something that makes you go, hey, wait a minute. I'm going to choose to be there because God's brought us together. I believe that the great challenge of our time is recognizing that it's not about moralism. It's not about be better. It's about Jesus in me because he is better. It's not about finding the people I'm most comfortable with. It's about making myself uncomfortable so that I can see what God is doing among people who are different than me. It's a weird time. It's a divided time. It's a contentious time. It's an angry time. And there's never been a better time for the church of Jesus to show him to the rest of the world. If you are not a believer and you're watching, if you say, I don't know if, if I'm a Christian, I, I went to church, I believe in God, but I don't know if, if I have a saving relationship. This invitation to come and experience the love of God, to have the love of God be made complete in you, to have freedom from sin, to have freedom from bondage, to step from darkness into light is there for you. And I believe that if you call out to God wherever you are at right now, Jesus hears you. And I'd love to speak with you more about it if you have questions. And for those of us who are in Christ, the invitation is to come and be the embodiment of Jesus together to a world around us that is stuck in hate and division that is stuck in violence and needs the peace and the love and the mercy of God to set us free from the chains of immorality as much as the chains of religious oppression. Let's be Jesus together as he's doing his work in our lives and inviting all who would come to find rest in him. Would you join me now in a time of prayer as we respond whatever Jesus has spoken to you this morning, we can answer back as we pray together.
check, check. You know, I believe firmly that God speaks to us. God speaks to us in a lot of different ways. He speaks to us through other Christians. He speaks to us through music. He speaks to us through the reading and the proclaiming of his word and his gospel. He speaks to us directly through his own Holy Spirit. And I've experienced God speaking in all of those ways. And I know that when God speaks and he initiates that it's on us to respond to what God is doing. So we are going to take a time of prayer and we are going to respond to what God is doing. Now I want you, encourage you to be free to use the pause button. If you need to pause so that you can pray over some point or something, then you can unpause and you can continue with us. Also, I'd invite you to enter whatever a posture of prayer is for you. For some people, it's sitting. For some people, it's standing. For some people, hands are raised. Others' hands are folded. It doesn't matter. Eyes open or eyes closed. However, it's best for you to enter a time of prayer and concentration as we respond to Jesus together. I want to read from the book of the Revelation, chapter 21. And I want to invite you, as I read these words, to focus in on key phrases, ideas, or verses that stand out to you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth and the first heaven had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magical arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And Lord, as I read that, I heard that you give without cost. Thank you, thank you, thank you that the gift of new life in Jesus is free because you, Lord, paid every price. That all of the cost was taken upon yourself and you've given this victory freely. Thank you that you have brought us from the place of these in verse 8 who are going to sadly enter that second death, but you've saved us from that. And you, you save any who will come. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. And as I read again, as I read again, I invite us then to look and see what is Jesus doing in these verses. And then I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no mourning or death, crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Jesus, I, I don't know what others see, but I see you making all things new. I see you wiping away the grief and the pain of this world. I see you creating a space for us to live in the harmony that you meant between people and God and people and each other. Thank you for the work that you have done. Thank you for the work that you are doing. Thank you for the work that you are doing right now to prepare this place. When we pray, your kingdom come, Lord, this is what we're talking about. We pray that this kingdom would come soon. Thank you for that work that you are doing. And Lord, I ask for all who need tears wiped away, that you would be their comforter even now, and that you would fill us with the hope of this glorious future, and that you would spur us to call others to this hope. Thank you that you're saving people out of the darkness and bringing us into life. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And if you are in Christ, this is a glorious hope. But if you aren't sure, this is a strong warning and a glorious invitation. You are invited to this new life that Jesus is offering. But be warned that Jesus is also very blunt about what he is saving us from. So be saved be victorious, be new all through what Jesus has done. And those of us who are already in Christ, we rejoice, we say amen, we say come quickly, Lord Jesus. God bless you and we'll see you next week as we gather together again.